Genesis chapter 11, finishing off the chapter. We're going to be learning about all of Shem's children. Um, And we're going to be reading from verse 10 to the end of the chapter. Uh, We've got some interesting names here. It's going to be fun. And I didn't practice it, so probably should have. We'll see how I go. All right, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor, Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the daughter of Milcah and Iscah. Sorry, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Riveting stuff. But there's actually a lot in here. And we find ourselves coming to the end of one of the major sections of the book of Genesis. We often find Genesis 1 to 11 grouped together. And they're kind of seen as the prehistory until we reach the character of Abram. And up until now, we've had this magnificent account of the creation of the universe, uh, the creation of humanity and Adam and Eve, that cataclysmic fall when they ate from the fruit after being deceived by the serpent. And lastly, we saw the flood and how the flood destroyed the earth. And then that kind of post-flood community decides to disobey God and build this big tower and try to make a name for themselves and declare their autonomy. And these stories have gotten us somewhere. And that somewhere is the person of Abram. He's the person we've ended up at right now. And the genealogy has taken us to this remarkable individual that is the most important figure in the Bible outside Jesus, is Abram. In fact, Google says that he's uh, the top in, in the most famous people who have ever lived, Abraham is number three. Only uh, 
beaten by Muhammad and Jesus. Very fascinating stuff when you look at that. And Abram was a Hebrew. And a Hebrew was a person who was a descendant of Eber. That's where we get the word Hebrew from. And the culture, language, and traditions that came from his descendants. Eber was alive during the Tower of Babel incident. So everything we learnt from last week, this guy, the father of the Hebrews, was there for that. How do I know that? Well, he has a son named Peleg. And he didn't get that leg in some uh, disaster on, on a voyage or something. But back in Genesis 10.25, to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his name literally means division. And when was it divided? When was the earth divided? Well, we know when that happened, the Tower of Babel. So Eber was that first generation who spoke a different language from everyone else when everyone's languages was confused. And this is where Hebrew comes into existence. And so within this section of Genesis is this treasure trove of ancient anthropological and geopolitical information, stuff that I'm sure keeps you up at night, you're so fascinated in it, you can't get enough of it. Um, And I know you've come to church today because you're just fascinated with these kind of things. But with me, uh, I love this stuff. I mean, the the subject of history probably isn't in most of you, your top five subjects at any given person. Uh, But if you're me, when I was a kid, if you asked me, and I'm I'm not making this up, what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have told you a historian. I loved this kind of stuff. And I'm not going to try to inject all my energy into this kind of stuff and teach you on uh, all the different geopolitical situations that were going on right now, but I love this stuff. But the fact that something like this is included in the narrative, whether or not you find this riveting, the fact that God included this in Scripture tells us that He considers this important. And if He didn't consider it important, He would have just had a footnote. Shem had a whole bunch of kids and they ended up with Abram. We don't need to talk about the middle, but we take the time to talk about the middle. Why? Some just think these genealogies are narrative tools to try to get us to the next section of the story. All these guys, not important, but we'll talk about them just to get us forward in time until we get to the important guy we want to talk about, which is Abram. But a lot more is going on here. We're tracing a lineage. But why is a lineage important? It's kind of guaranteed that if you're over the age of 40, you visited Ancestry.com at least once. You may have uh, spat in a tube and sent it off and got your DNA results checked to see what your genetic makeup is. Uh, but it, it's interesting that if, if the older you get, the more interested you are in your lineage, how you ended up where you're going to be. And as you get older, you start reflecting on your life and you start reflecting on how you came to where you, you're going to be, the legacy you're going to leave, and all the stuff that came beforehand. But if you're under the age of 25, uh, you're more likely to have a negative interest in that kind of thing. I remember my dad trying to tell me this kind of stuff about the Baker side of my family, which was his mum's mum, and you know, William Baker stole some spoons and ended up a convict on a ship or something. And I was like, Dad, please, I do not want to, I don't care about this guy stealing some spoons. But for him, it was fascinating. He loved that kind of stuff, right? And the biblical narrative, it's leading us through the various families and it's reminding us that we're supposed to be looking for someone, that we were supposed to be paying attention. And who are we supposed to be looking for? The seed of the woman, yes. The seed of the woman. Remember, all the way back in Genesis 3, the curse that was placed 
on the serpent, the serpent who had rebelled against God and successfully deceived all of humanity to joining him in that rebellion. And there was a curse. What was the curse? That the seed of the woman would come and crush his head, that he would be toast, that he would be gone, that the serpent's introduced system of disease, sin and suffering and death, we know later through the uh, narrative of Scripture, would be destroyed and the serpent would be crushed along with it. And there was this great hope that this messianic figure would show up. And it's one of those things where, like, you know, someone keeps you in suspense, someone tells a really bad story, right, and they're just, you're waiting for the ending, and it just never comes, and then the ending finally comes, and you're like, is that it? You feel a little bit like that. You're like, oh, when's the seed of the woman going to come? And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Okay, Cain, Cain's here. Okay, that's rather quick. Oh, no, it's not Cain. All right, let's move on. What's going on? Oh, Noah. Okay, Noah is a good candidate. We get to Abram. We're going to find out that Abram is, plays a really important role, but he even isn't that candidate. But God is deliberately doing this. He's not telling us this, this long-winded tale. He's got a deliberate purpose. It's a narrative. It's a plan. He has a plan for all of salvation and the redemption of the human race. And it's going to look very different to what we think it would look like. And every time the text pauses on a character, we have to stop and think, is this him? Is this the seed of the woman? We've stopped on Cain on Noah, and we're going to stop on this man, Abram. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about households. It has a lot to say about legacy. Every human that ever walks on this earth leaves some kind of footprint. And their footprint is often a mixture of good and bad. And that footprint that they leave uh, goes, uh, has ripples that affects the future for way longer than that person could ever possibly imagine. And people talk a lot about wanting to leave the earth a better place than when they were born. The problem is we all have different definitions of what a better world looks like. I'm sure Nimrod and all his buddies, when they were building the Tower of Babel, thought that they were making a difference in the world, thought that they were going to make the world a better place, that this world would look better if their vision of what the world should be comes into existence. I'm sure Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks, when they had the Russian Revolution, wanted to leave the world a better place, when they led the workers to overthrow those who were in power and distribute wealth equally, and it just led to one of the least equal societies that you could possibly imagine. I mean, Robespierre, he wanted to give freedom to the French peasants during the French Revolution, except most of them ended up in the guillotine without a head. A lot of people want to change the world, and a lot of them thought they were changing the world for the better. And the important thing to note is that all movements attempt to leave a legacy. And so it's not whether or not you feel like you leave a legacy, it's whether or not God thinks that you've left a legacy. And what is the legacy of Eber, the father of the Hebrews? Well, we know about him today, so he seems like an important figure. And from his line would come the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the savior of the world. And his legacy would be told for thousands of generations. His lineage would be read aloud. This passage that I've read aloud has been read aloud many times. I'm sure if you guys have read the book of Genesis, uh, maybe multiple times, you've read his name. He seems like an important guy. And how did Eber leave this legacy? Well, it wasn't because of anything he did. It was pure grace. Eber is a nobody. He's the father of a greatly successful household, despite his attempts to destroy his own legacy. 
His descendants migrated south, only a short distance away from Babel, and we see the city, Ur of the Chaldeans. And so they're just south of the Tower of Babel. At that time, it was a coastal town. Now it's like hundreds of, uh, I'm not sure if it's hundreds of kilometers, but it's a decent distance inland because of the changing um, uh, sea levels. But the command to disperse on the earth wasn't taken that seriously by either. He made a, you know, kind of fumbling attempt to move a little bit away, but he didn't move that far away. And from there, his family quickly abandons its belief in God. That's all we know about Eber, is he doesn't move that far away, and he starts to worship other gods. Not a great legacy. I mean, the book of Joshua gives a bit of insight into Abram's family. Joshua 24, 2-3. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father, Abraham, from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Abraham wasn't from a family of believers. In fact, he was the opposite. This might be your story. You might come from a family who doesn't trust in the Lord Jesus and doesn't believe in him and have turned their eyes onto different gods. If your family lived in the ancient Near East, they would worship Baal or Ashtaroth or Molech. But because your family's born in the 20th or 21st century, they worship money or comfort or pleasure. Either way, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for created things. If this is your story, there might be more in this text than you realized. Where you come from does not matter to God. If your family is indifferent to God, whether they're openly hostile to God or nominally Christian, they're only Christian in name, but their Christianity doesn't go very far, you are not beyond the grace of God. You're like a stick snatched from the fire. Your family was going this way and God pulled you out. Why? Grace. God's grace reached into the line of Eber. And I want to stress with you, he was a nobody who didn't do much and he didn't follow God. And he plucked out one of his descendants, Abram to start the greatest legacy to the greatest household that ever was. And for most of Abram's family, they continued to reject God. So much so, when Jacob, uh, Abram's grandson, wants, a, uh, wants to get a wife, he marries this woman named Rachel, and then they, he brings her back to where he's from. She can't help but grab all her household gods and bring them with her. She brings all the idols because she doesn't want to leave her religion behind. She wants to bring it with her. Abram's family was trouble, and they brought a lot of trouble into his lineage. And it's devastating when you share Jesus with your family and they don't get it. They can't bear to leave their gods behind. They bring them with them. They can't bear to give up the fleeting comfort for the chance to know God, the source of all good. It's devastating to think that one day your family member will stand before God and give an account. And I'm not saying this as someone that comes from this great line of, Christians and I don't have any skin in the game in this like none of my family believe none of my family know Jesus but don't give up hope because when Abram will find out believes God and trusts in him and is counted as righteous he is not alone his nephew Lot goes with him now Lot is not the greatest guy but he comes along don't give up on your family You might be surprised who is soft to the gospel and who isn't. 
It might not be your immediate family, but maybe a nephew like Lot or a niece or a mother or a father or a brother or a sister or cousin, whoever it is, God is gracious. And when he chooses people for salvation, he not only chooses individuals, but households. He is working something new and he's creating a new story. If you were the first in your family to become a Christian, you need to change the way you view yourself. You aren't the recipient of this long line of faithfulness within your family. Yeah, I get that. But you're the beginning of a new line. You're starting something new. You're leaving a new legacy that you can leave in the lives of people inside and outside your family and you can make an impact in the lives that God has set aside for you to reach. You might be thinking, you know, why me? Out of all my family, why me? Why, why was I the snick snatched from the fire? Why was I the one that God chose? Well, God actually has something to say about this. He actually tells Israel exactly why he chose them. You might be surprised at the answer. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Well, there's one thing you can definitely conclude. It wasn't because you were so great that God decided to show his mercy and grace to you because Israel was not a great nation. God didn't come along and be like, look at these guys, the Israelites in slavery with not much to go for them, kind of a bunch of losers. And God says, no, I'm going to show my love to them. It's not because you got your life together more than someone else. It's not because that you have this special soft spot for God in your heart that other people don't have. No, it's not because you are so good. It's because God loves you. It's because God showed grace to you. It's amazing. He decided to show his love and mercy on them by grace, not because they were anything special. And if you are a Christian here today, it's the same reason. You are not a Christian because of anything about you, but because your father in heaven loves you. And when you understand that truth, when you understand that reality, and you can never boast again. You can never start talking about how great you are. It's like a permanently humili, like not humiliating. What's the, I mean, technically that'd be the right word, but it has the wrong connotations right now. But it brings humility to you. It makes you humble. You know, you're not better than anyone else. In fact, God explicitly tells you that there is nothing that special or great about you. If you have made a decision to follow Jesus, it's because God loves you. And if this plans a, finds a place in your heart, you won't be able to stop yourself from leaving a legacy that glorifies God. Jesus tells this wonderful parable in uh, Matthew 25. Matthew 25, 14 to 30, he says this, For it will be like a man going out on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's one of the most interesting parables that Jesus tells. And these talents, they're more than just our gifts and abilities. But how we invest them across time. How we invest our lives for the glory of our Master. And the question is, will we invest our lives for the glory of the master or for the glory of ourselves? Those who built the Tower of Babel were trying to make a name for themselves. And still today, many are trying to make a name for themselves. The Christian is different from the world. Because whatever we are building, we build it for his fame. To make his name famous, not our own. Our investments bring a return for the master. Our attempts bring a return for the master. And it's almost certain that Eber attempted to build a legacy for himself. It just didn't amount to much. His legacy didn't really go anywhere. His family fell apart and abandoned God and engaged in some pretty shady activities. And it's only by the sheer mercy and grace of God that Abram became the man that he did. Abram was the man of faith, the father of all who will have faith in the Lord. According to Romans, get into Romans. We don't have time for that now, but... There is so much to get into when it comes to Abram. And we have plenty of time to unpack the person of Abraham, who he'll become to be. But Abram, in the coming weeks, and one thing I want you to know is that Abram left behind him a legacy of faith. His name appears all throughout the Scriptures. His name appears especially in the New Testament. He is the man of faith. And his legacy pointed beyond him to the God who makes all things possible. His story was a story of God's grace. And so my question for you is this. When you die, will you leave a legacy that points more to you or to God? When you die, will your legacy be one of self-serving, chasing after other gods like comfort and pleasure and wealth? And it grieves my heart when I see so many Christians just so indifferent, just full of apathy. They just don't really care. So many Christians lacking any serious engagement with the church, lacking in any commitment to anything beyond themselves. And it's so disheartening to see the household of God burying their talents and thinking that God's going to be cool with it. And I don't necessarily mean, I'm not calling out any of you guys in here, but the church in Australia at large. According to Jesus, 
God isn't cool with that. That's a bit of an understatement. He's furious. It's serious. What happens to the man who buries his talent? He doesn't lose anything. He has the same talent at the end to give to the master. It's just not invested. The one who buries their talents, he was a a follower of the master, wasn't he? He was a member. He was a servant. He was part of it. And yet at the end of the parable, what happens to this servant? He's thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And look, I don't know where that place is, where we, what, it, what it's going to literally turn out to be, but if that's a symbol for it, it's not a good place, right? It's not a place you want to go. And a person who buries their talents and gives no return for God is an imposter. He's an imposter. They will not be welcomed in as a faithful servant, but cast out as a wicked and slothful servant. And Jesus is warning us in this parable because those who claim to believe in him but have no growth in holiness and no striving for the kingdom are imposters. They are not servants at all. They are not Christians. And so have you thought about your legacy? doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're 8 or 15 or 75. If there's breath in your lungs, it's not too late to be starting to think seriously about what you will leave this world, what your life will mean. Because it is only by grace that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servants. And we just read a story of people having children, being given in marriage, living their lives, and God calls Abram. So are you called? Can you see that break? And if you're from a Christian family, Obviously, you don't want that break, but that break from your old way of life, that old sin, that old affections. Think of the things that God has put in your life. This is your opportunity now. God has given you things to be responsible for, people that you are connected to. Be faithful in the little things. Point beyond yourself to the wonderful God who has saved you. And by so doing, you will show yourself to be a son or daughter of Abram, the man of faith. Abram left a legacy of faith. What will be your legacy? Let's pray. Father, Lord, when we hear confrontational words like this, especially words that we weren't expecting to hear from a passage like this, when we start to really reflect on these people that really lived, that really uh, made decisions, made choices, Lord, and they made foolish decisions and foolish choices and left a legacy that was nothing to write home about. But Lord, you didn't leave that situation the way it was. By love and grace, you came into that situation and you chose Abram, you brought him out and you gave him a land and you gave him a promise, a promise that through him would come the blessing of the world, Jesus. And by having the same faith as Abram, we're saved by having that same faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who you rose again from the dead who died and was risen and is seated at the right hand of God. Father, it's amazing when we see Christians that are just not transformed by this. Lord, would your spirit just convict us, show us the gaps in our hearts, the gaps in our understanding and the gaps in our love for you. Would you speak truth into situations? 
Lord, we love you. We praise you for all that you've done. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.